0: This was life or death. I was your age when I went through my shooting, so I feel a connection to you. No one should ever have to go through this. Bullets came in that room. Yeah. I could hear people in the hallway and in my class crying out for help. My teacher came back and there was blood all over her clothes. Hey, it's Dr. Phil, and I'm back with you talking about murder this week, but I'm doing something a little bit different. And That's one of the good things about podcasts is I get to talk about what I think you're really interested in, and I've really been paying attention to what you've been saying, what the comments have been, not just on the podcast, but on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and the fact that we've been talking about murders has really gotten, I think, all of you interested in murder in general. Like, is this really happening more in this day and time? Or is it just getting covered more? Are we just talking about it more? So I kind of want to break murder down and analyze it from a psychological standpoint as it relates to you. And I think you're going to hear some very shocking things in the next little bit of time. The first question I've got for you is, are you capable of murder? Think about that. Are you capable of murder? Do you have the traits and characteristics of a murderer? Would you be surprised if you did? How many times have you said in traffic, I could kill that guy. This makes me so mad I could kill him. You don't really mean that, right? I mean, nobody really means that when they say it. But is that a gateway to murder? Is that where people lose control and actually do murder someone or is Is it a whole different path of pathology that leads to that? So keep in mind, are you capable of murder? I promise you, I'm talking to somebody right now that's going to commit a murder. I highly suspect it's not you, but one among you, statistically, is going to commit a murder because one happens every 29 minutes in America and one happens every 60 seconds globally. Now, that's a lot of us killing one another. And I think it behooves us to take a minute and stop and think about why. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessi Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessi.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. So who commits murders in America? Well, you might be surprised to know that only 14% of all victims are killed by strangers, where somebody just up and kills somebody they don't know. They meet them on the street, kill them in a back alley, shoot them in the commission of another crime. That's only 14%. 15% of murders are committed by a spouse or a family member. Did you think about the next morning my parents will be dead? I didn't really think about that too much. Think about that when you look across the dinner table. And 33% are committed by acquaintances. People you know, but you're not in an intimate relationship, but they know you well enough to kill you. And that's why I always say situational awareness is critically important. Who do you have in your life? Trust me, a fair amount of this population right now is mentally unstable. Take a minute. Think about the people in your circle. Think about the people in your life. Think about the people at work that you just think there's just something not right about him or her. Think about Uncle Bob. Think about whoever's around that you look at him and you just think, I'm uneasy around this person. Well, a third of murders are committed by those people I'm talking about right now. People that are acquaintances. You don't know them well, but you know them well enough to know there's there's something not right. That's where most of these murders take place. And then 33% are undetermined. We don't really know what the relationship is or how they cross paths. And you might be very disheartened to know that 40% of the people that commit murder in America, stone cold, just get away with it. 40% of the murders are unsolved. And we have all this technology now with DNA and fingerprints and all of this. But the resolution rate in the 60s was almost 90%. In the 1960s, almost 90% of murders were solved. But yet here we are with all this technology in 2019, and only 60% of murders are solved. Now, that's just a little over half. That means you kill somebody, your chances of getting away with it are about half. That's just not right. But that's what the statistics tell us. Now, is that relevant to you and I? Well. In the last year that we have full statistics, which is 2017, 17,284 murders or non-negligent manslaughters took place. Now the reason they combine those is because non-negligent manslaughter means you killed somebody on purpose. They don't call it murder because there were some mitigating circumstances, but murder and non-negligent homicide means somebody died on purpose you did something that caused somebody to die, so they lumped those together, 17,264. Now, why do people do it? Think about taking somebody else's life. That's a big step, right? It's a big step for two people, the one that gets killed and the one that does the killing because you have that hanging over your head for the rest of your life. You have to live with that, the moral weight of having killed someone else. This is a big decision, so why does it happen so often? Well, let's talk about that psychologically for a minute, and we're going to talk about profiling later on. My experience has been that people tend to resort to violence when they run out of socially acceptable ways to express themselves. Now, think about what I just said. People resort to violence when they run out of socially acceptable ways to express themselves. They run out of words. They run out of arguments. They run out of ways to deflect. You always say, don't mess with a wounded, cornered animal. They're very dangerous. It's the same thing with social animals, us, as human beings. People tend to resort to violence when they have no other alternative. They're frustrated. They're out of other ways to express themselves, to defend themselves, to get out of the trap. They see no other alternative. It is typically an extension of rage. It is often an extension of frustration. It always is an extension of poor communication, because let's face it, when you kill somebody, the conversation kind of dries up, right? There's not a whole lot left to say. And it is an impulse thing. Now there are premeditated murders, but most people aren't real planful about this. Now oftentimes they are when it involves a spouse, intimate partner, that's where premeditation takes place, but generally these are impulsive acts. And rage and revenge are often at the core of why someone murders another person. That's why in most cases they're known. Only 14% are strangers. The vast majority are known. 48% are either acquaintances or you're in their family. So it's rage. And profilers will tell you when they look at a murder scene reveals the person's personality and their motivations. Now the question is, is this really happening more, or because of the internet, are we just getting more coverage? Do we just see it more? Well, the answer is yes and no. There was a sharp rise in murder rate after 1963, and it peaked between 1970 and the early 90s, and now it's back to the 1960s rates which is really quite high, actually. So it's not that we're just talking about it more. It is quite high. And as I say, globally, it's 1 per 60 seconds. So how do we rate as a country? Well, globally, the rate is 6.2 per 100,000. In America, it's 4.9 per 100,000. You think, well, then we're doing pretty good globally. Well, yeah, that's true until you compare us to other civilized nations. For example, if you compare us to Austria, Germany, England, and Scotland, they're all at or below 1 per 100,000, and we're at 4.9 per 100,000. So we're almost four times the average of developed countries where they have laws and rules and civilized society. It's only when you get into third world countries where things are less civilized and people are more dealing with brute force and much less socialized in their hierarchies do we come in below the average. If you compare us to other civilized nations, we're not doing very well at all. And Are there hotspots in America where it's high? Yeah, it's true. There are dangerous cities in America. Just based on statistics, St. Louis is number one, Baltimore, number two, New Orleans, three, Detroit, number four. Chicago is closing the gap really fast. In fact, Chicago accounted for 50% of the increase in murders in the year 2016. And they haven't let up. When the new stats come out, I think we're gonna see Chicago right up there at the top. The questions aren't just that they're high, in violence the question is why why are they high in violence what's going on so it's happening a lot in america and there are hot spots and people are doing this out of frustration now there's been a lot of theories about whether or not this is being egged on by these violent video games we've got our kids and they're playing these games where The controller is a gun, and they're blowing people's heads off and blowing people in half, throwing grenades, shooting people down with automatic weapons. And so the thought is, we're modeling this. This is them practicing for real life. So they're using all these violent video games, and that's going to cause them to be violent in society. I hear parents say that all the time. fact of the matter is, statistics just don't bear that out. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. But violent video games do not predict that that child is going to go out and be violent in society. There's actually some evidence that it may be cathartic, that they may get those impulses out in a fictional way instead of doing it in a realistic way. So I don't necessarily think the games are therapeutic, but there's certainly no evidence that suggests that they're shaping people into being violent in society. Now, what we've been talking about are murders that are just individual murders. We're just talking about one person that murders another person. But what really has grabbed headlines, and I know you know it, is school shootings and mass shootings. Now, you're gonna fact check what I'm getting ready to tell you, and I invite you to do so, because what I'm getting ready to tell you is staggering. So far in 2019, there have been 222 mass shootings. That's in the first six and a half months of this year. Let's talk about how we define a mass shooting. A mass shooting is described as four or more people shot but not necessarily killed in one incident, excluding the perpetrator at the same time and location in a public place. And this excludes terroristic attacks, gangland shootings, drug-related shootings. These are where someone without that kind of an agenda, terrorism, gangs, a gang war, or a drug war, go in and start shooting fellow citizens. There have been 222 mass shootings so far this year. Between 2013 and 2019, there have been 2,157 mass shootings, and that has resulted in 2,414 deaths, and 8,964 wounded people. That's staggering, right? And we're separating mass shootings from school shootings. In 2018, last year, there were 24 school shootings. And so far this year, there has been one per month. There have been eight school shootings so far in the first six and a half months of 2019. That just seems unbelievable, does it not? America sees roughly one shooting a day. And the Las Vegas Strip Music Festival shooting on October 1st of 2017 was the deadliest U.S. mass shooting where 59 people were killed. We just kept hearing gunshots and gunshots. I knew I had got shot and I just went down. And I kept saying, I have to get my friend, I have to get her. I thought I was gonna die. And I'm so glad that we made it out alive, (laughs) because it could have been so much worse. Those numbers are obviously concerning. They're staggering. No one would think it's happening that often, either in school shootings or in mass shootings. So the question obviously follows, who's doing this? What's causing it? The truth of the matter is, there are some consistencies in almost all cases. They're men very seldom do you have a female mass shooter or school shooter now there have been some exceptions there was a female shooter in santa barbara but in most cases for example the fbi did a study that published in 2018 studying 50 active shooter incidences between 2016 and 2017 and 100 percent of those were male who were these males well of them were single, 22% of them were divorced or separated, which means 79% of these people were unmarried. They weren't in a relationship where there was somebody there to monitor them, check them, have some way to put their finger on the pulse and see what was going on. They were living alone in most cases and they certainly weren't in an active relationship. 63% were white, and so is the population. Most shooters, and this is the important thing to think about, most of these shooters had what are called concerning behaviors. And these are behaviors that are exhibited leading up to the acts of violence, the actual shooting, the attacks. And the concerning behaviors fell into four categories. One, abuse, they were abusive, harassment they had been harassing someone they were showing bullying behavior and they were showing acts of violence in some way but short of shooting someone now a third of them had been convicted of a crime as an adult which means they were in the system by the way having been convicted of a crime as an adult they were already in the system they were on the radar of law enforcement so we know they're not unknown to the police, and this abuse, harassment, bullying, and violence was present two-thirds of the time. So this is a significant thing. You've got people that, you know, they always say, oh, it's just like a nice guy that was just kind of invisible. That's not true. That's a myth. These aren't nice guys that just come out of nowhere and do this. These are abusive, harassing, bullying, violent people that are making noise that people aren't reacting to. They act in oppressive ways. The bullying is excessive and it's often in the workplace where they're harassing other people, which means there are those around them that they're interacting with which are seeing this behavior. 16% are involved in intimate partner violence, means that they have gotten physically violent with their significant other, but that's only 16% because as I said, most of these people, almost 80% are not in A relationship. And 11% have made somebody's radar for stalking someone. So these are people not in the background. They're out there making waves. They're making noise. They're getting attention. And when they go back and look at these shooters, on an average, they've exhibited at least five of these acts leading up to the shooting. And in 80% of the cases, At least one other person knew what they were going to do before they did it. Now, think about what I just said. In eight out of 10 cases, they had told, signaled, messaged, written in some way another person, I'm going down there tomorrow and shooting that place up. I'm going back to my job where I was fired. I'm going to the post office. I'm going to the school. I'm going to the mall. I'm going to the nightclub where I've been rejected, whatever, they've told at least one person what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. Oftentimes, this gets on the radar of law enforcement and still it's not reacted to. Why? Because oftentimes, threats are not carried out. More often than not, they're not carried out. But still, in 80% of the cases, they've told at least one other person what they're going to do. In 60-some-odd percent of the cases, they've told two or more people what they're going to do. And by telling them what they're going to do, I mean as Blayton is saying, don't go to work tomorrow because something bad's going to happen. I've had it. These people are going to pay. Don't go to work tomorrow. You don't want to be there. Where they flat-out warn somebody, you don't want to be there tomorrow because it's going to get bad, it's going to get ugly or they flat out shown somebody their guns, their ammunition, their drawings, their plans, that they're going to go shoot the place up. And either the person does nothing about it, or they tell law enforcement, and law enforcement doesn't take it seriously, or says there's nothing we can do until they do something. Or it gets caught up in the bureaucracy. But think about what we're saying here. There have been 222 incidences of this so far this year. And do the math. In over 150 of those cases, based on statistics, somebody knew it was going to happen before it happened, and nobody did anything about it. That's not good. There's another category that I need to add to this so we can think about it, and it's very disturbing, maybe the most disturbing of all, and that's what I refer to as the family annihilator. Familicide. This is defined as the killing of multiple family members at the same time and in the same location. And that means someone goes home, walks in the door, and kills everybody in the house. Now, this doesn't happen nearly as frequently as do the mass shootings or the school shootings, but we're talking dozens of times over the last several years I dealt with one of those this year with the Chris Watts situation where he went home, killed his pregnant wife, meaning he killed her and the unborn child. Then he killed his two daughters. He strangled her to death and began wrapping her up in a sheet. Did Bella witness any of that? Bella walked in and asked, what are you doing with mommy? He walks over and takes uh, CeCe's favorite blanket and uh, smothers her to death. He annihilated the entire family. Oftentimes they then kill themselves. In this case, he did not. And people often look at me and say, Dr. Phil, who does that? Why not get a divorce? Why not run away? Why not do something? But why kill everybody? Who does that kind of thing? People say that a lot, but when they say it to me, it's not rhetorical. They're really asking who does that kind of thing. And I can tell you who does it. There are people that have a history of domestic violence and it just keeps escalating and escalating. They're often unemployed and they're under a lot of financial strain. Jealousy is often involved. There's often an attempt at separation by the partner that is killed. And the shooter has that thought in their mind, if I can't have you, then nobody can. There's anger and rage involved, and there's often suicide, as I've said. I've heard many of these people talk about the fact that they want to save their family members from going through the hell of life. They're feeling so defeated. They're feeling so much in hell that they think my family's gonna go through the same thing. I don't want them suffering the way I am, so I'm just gonna put them out of their misery. And that's a very narcissistic and selfish mindset, but that's how they're thinking. So are there commonalities among this? You know, We've talked about individual shooters. We've talked about mass shooters. We've talked about school shooters and we've talked about family annihilators, and there are consistencies here. There are things, and perhaps at the core, we see that most of these perpetrators are males. Most of them are white males. And oftentimes, we see that there is an element of rage, there's anger, frustration, and some sense of revenge that's involved in these acts of violence, where they feel some sense of justification for what they're doing. They feel some sense of marginalization from society, whether they've been fired from their job, they've been rejected, bullied at school, marginalized in some way from their peer group at school, so they're on the outside looking in. Maybe the world has rejected them because they are failing financially, they can't keep their family together, and they just feel like they're overwhelmed, that somehow or another they're being mistreated, and they're going to show them. They're going to get revenge. They're going to go about some desperate act where people are going to see how much they're hurting. I'm going to show you how much I'm hurting because I'm going to inflict on you the pain that I'm feeling. And when you talk to profilers, particularly FBI profilers, they will tell you that when they look at a crime scene, that one of the tenets of profiling is that the behavior of the shooter, the behavior of the killer, reflects that person's personality. And with that in mind, there are three questions that a profiler has to ask when they're faced with a case trying to figure out who is involved in the shooting, who the perpetrator is. And the three questions they ask are, what evidence is present at the scene? What clues have been left there? Number two, what is the motive? Why would somebody do this? And then third, who is the suspect, obviously? And these people don't do this at random. I promise you, when you see a school shooting or a mass shooting, It is not a random act. There's just not somebody driving down the highway and randomly they take an exit and randomly they walk into a business and start shooting. It does not happen that way. It is not random. There is a motive and there will be signs of that at the scene. And when you start deconstructing the crime, you will back into what the motive was and why it happened there. There's often a heavy fantasy involvement in how they kill. So much of their personality is left at the crime scene. And think about what I'm saying. Murder is not a one-dimensional thing. It's not just like I got mad and killed somebody. Psychologically, murder fills a very complex psychological need. And it's usually not for money. It's usually not associated with a robbery or whatever. it's usually has to do with the personality, the psyche, the head. And there was a case recently where a supervisor was found at work and they were stabbed in the back a hundred times. And then they were stabbed in the heart two or three times. And then they were covered up with a blanket. What does that tell a profiler? And you might think, well, The person obviously was angry you don't stab somebody a hundred times unless you are in an absolute fit of rage right i mean that is a frenzied wild fit of rage that tells you something about the person the fact that they've stabbed them a hundred times in the back as cliche as it sounds that's indicative of that person feeling like they were stabbed in the back so immediately, that's going to tell me this is someone that has an involvement with this workplace, an involvement with this supervisor that feels like they've been betrayed. Maybe they feel like they got passed over. Maybe they feel like they got blamed for something. Maybe they feel like they got fired unfairly, but they feel like they got stabbed in the back. It is no accident they stabbed this person in the back a hundred times. And then they turn them over and stab him in the heart. To me, from a profiling standpoint, This person broke their heart, and they're going to do the same thing. And when the frenzy is over, when the rage is over, they cover them up. Why? Because guilt sets in. They're ashamed of what they've done after they've done it, which tells me they know the person. So I look at all of these things and begin to see a profile. This is someone that knew the person, felt betrayed by the person, hurt by the person, And that narrows who I start looking for before anybody hands me a list of suspects to start going through. When somebody walks into a specific school and starts shooting, they didn't pick a random school. They have something to do with that school. Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is because, is there a way to derail these things? People often ask, should we be doing psychological profiling before we sell someone a gun, if we sell them a gun at all? There are people that think that we should revoke the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. I'll leave that up to you, but people have said, Dr. Phil, why not do psychological profiling on these people before you sell them a gun? I don't particularly object to that, but I can tell you this, we simply don't have the tools we don't have the screening tools to predict who's going to buy a gun and commit a an act of violence with it. I know what the psychological tools are. I know what all the profiles are. I know what all the personality tests are, and I can tell you we do not have a psychological instrument that, with efficiency, with reliability, can predict who you should not sell a gun to. You said, well, what about people that are psychotic? Actually, there are large parts of the mentally ill population that is less violent than the general population. So you can give people psychological tests, and maybe it creates some kind of a database that can be used in the future, but I can tell you there is no test you can give someone that's going to predict whether or not they're going to take that gun, walk into a building, and shoot up the people that are in the building. If you pay attention, there are signs... I've just gone over with you what some of the signs are. These people tend to be abusive. They tend to be bullies. They tend to harass others. They tend to be oppressive and harassing in the workplace. There are people that do have these concerning behaviors. But again, there are people that have those behaviors who don't shoot the place up. These things make sense after the fact. Think about the Virginia Tech shooter. The Virginia Tech shooter was writing stories, gory, morbid stories, that were so disturbing that one of his professors went to the dean and said, I'm very concerned about this person. I don't want him in my class anymore. Look at what they're writing. Well, look at what Stephen King writes. Look at what a lot of the horror story, Friday the 13th and all of these kind of writings. People write weird, morbid, gory sort of things and they never go out and commit an act of violence. So there's something called post hoc. It's when you come in after the fact and look at the behavior and go, well, the town fool can see that this person would be dangerous with a gun. Well that's after they've done something with a gun, but there might be a thousand other young men who have written the same sorts of things that never heard a fly. It only makes sense after the fact, when you know what they've done, and you go back and look at what they've written, and you go, well, yeah, of course, I mean, look at what they write. Would you want that person to have a gun? Well, no, now that I know what they've done. But does it predict what they're going to do? And the answer is, I'm sorry, but no, it doesn't. So we don't have the screening tools that we need to predict this. But what we do have, I believe, is discernment. We do have the ability to pay attention to those who are around us. We always say, if you see something, say something. I always add a third leg to that stool. If you see something, say something and do something. And of course, people are always concerned, are we gonna become a big brother society where we are informing on our neighbors? We're turning our neighbors into the police. He's acting weird, he's behaving oddly, so I'm gonna stick the police on him. I don't look at it that way. If there's a young man down the street from me that I really believe is at risk, for doing something really destructive, for doing something really bizarre, I think I'm helping that young man if I draw attention to him and get him help as opposed to ignoring that and him going and killing 10 or 20 people and ruining his own life in the process. Would that young man rather I have called attention to his pain and his hurt before he goes and shoots 10 or 20 people or would he rather I ignore it And let him go do this horrible act that he will live down for the rest of his life in a cage or with the death penalty. I don't consider it informing. I consider it looking out for your fellow man. And if somebody is that demented, if somebody is that pained, if somebody is that marginalized, if somebody is that out of control, I think we need to pay attention to that. Because when we break down who these people are, who these shooters are we know that 62% of them are struggling with some mental health issue that 57% of them have interpersonal problems 56% of them are discussing the attack they have a poor quality of thinking 48% have a suicidal ideation and that means they take high risk behaviors they aren't concerned for their own safety they're willing to go in there and give their own life to strike back at a world they think has hurt them. Their work performance has really eroded because they have taken their focus off of being productive and put their focus on revenge and rage. School performance has eroded. They are caught up in anger, physical aggression, and you see this risk-taking. They're waving guns around. They're showing them off to people. They're starting to show impulsivity. Their grooming is starting to fall apart. There are signs where they're falling out of step with society, and these things are observable if we know what to look for. And we may think, well, I'm not qualified to do that, Dr. Phil, maybe you are, you're saying that. You're saying, well, you can spot mental health problems. If you really are feeling uneasy around someone, I'm not saying that you go call the police on them, but maybe you speak to their parents, maybe you speak to their family members, maybe you speak to the pastor where they go to church, maybe you do something where you try to get this on the radar, but if they're starting to lose contact with society and reality, they're starting to break down interpersonal relationships, their thinking is starting to really be inconsistent, they're starting to take high-risk behaviors and have suicidal ideation. This is a person that's at risk for doing something to themselves or others, and I think as responsible members of the human race, we need to pay attention to this. The truth of the matter is that law enforcement is restricted. You're so frustrated sometimes when you say, he's going to do something. He's going to hurt his wife or his children, or he's going to do something, and they say, I can't. Arrest someone for their state of mind or what I think they're going to do. And we think, come on, police, get it in gear. But the truth is, they're correct. They cannot arrest someone for what they might be thinking. But listen to this they can't do something, but we can. As responsible neighbors and family members, we're the ones that see things. Mom, Dad, If your young man, your 17 year old white male, is putting together an armory in the basement or under his bed, it's your job to know that. You need to pay attention to that and you need to be concerned what he might do with that. And you need to be concerned about how much trouble might happen if you intervene now versus if you do not. If you have a young man that is beginning to behave erratically and you're just an avid hunter, it may be time for you to get those guns out of your house. You may think, well, I've got them locked up in a safe. Well, safes can be opened. If you've got someone that you believe is volatile, you might decide to put your rights to bear firearms on hold and take your responsibility to handle your son And put that in the top priority position. Almost 80% of shooters spend a week or more planning their attacks. They don't just go to bed one night wake up the next morning and start shooting people. They spend a week or more planning their attacks. If you're paying attention, you will see something during that week. And then there's what I mentioned about leakage. 80% tell at least one person. 60-some-odd percent tell at least two people. There are signs, there are warning signs, and I am giving you the profile now. I'm telling you now how you can spot these people. The people most likely to notice these concerning behaviors are the people who know the shooter the best. Family members, coworkers, and law enforcement depends on us, family, friends, classmates, to bring these people to the attention of either the authorities or the helping profession they're depending on us they can't be everywhere the people in the best position to help are the ones that know the shooter the best because we're the ones that are there to see them start to disintegrate we're the ones there to see the concerning behaviors that i've mentioned we're the ones there to see them starting to withdraw and feel marginalized and plan we're the ones to pick up on the leakage and mom dad spouse typically you're on the hit list. So you have a stake in this game beyond just what your young son might do. And I keep saying young son because between 94 and 100 percent of mass and school shooters are males. So that narrows it down for you. If you have a young male, 17, 18 years and up, and they're beginning to show these concerning behaviors, and your stomach, your gut is telling you something's not right, act on that. And what do I mean when I say act on that? Talk to them, reach out to resources. As I say, counselors, school counselors, pastoral counselors, their friends if they have them, whatever, burying your head in the sand is not an answer. What I'm gonna suggest you do is look for clusters of behaviors. If you see one isolated behavior, it's probably not something that's going to send you into a frenzy of concern. But you look for clusters of behaviors. If you see several of these concerning behaviors, and you see the person withdrawing, and you see the person beginning to make threats, take high-risk behaviors, all the things that I mentioned... And I've mentioned 15 or 20 different things that are consistent with these young male shooters. If you see a cluster of these things, three, four, five or more of these things occurring at once, this is when you should really start paying attention. Maybe they show one behavior, like they're harassing somebody at work. Okay, so they talk to HR and they get some counseling and they can get past that but you couple that up with five or six other of the concerning behaviors that we've talked about, now you need to start really paying attention and you need to start stepping up and intervening in some way. And the first place to start is with the person. Talk to the person. They will tell you how they feel if you ask them about it. And if what you hear causes you even greater concern, now it's time to go outside and get help from somewhere else. I wanted to take this break because we've talked about some situations where people have lost their life and we've analyzed that. And I'm going to continue to do that because I think it's interesting. I think it's a part of our humanity that we need to understand. But because so much is going on right now, because we have had 222 mass shootings already this year, Rather than just talk about specific cases, I wanted to talk about the act of murder itself because it is happening at an alarming rate. Mass shootings, school shootings, and individual killings are happening at an alarming rate. And when we get back to our series, we're going to talk about people that are accused of murder when they're innocent, people that have perpetrated crimes in ways that are really hard to unravel. And I think as we do that, there's gonna be a lot to be learned about human nature. And we have some intriguing mysteries and murders coming up. But I felt it was worthy of taking time. And I wanna hear from you, what you think about what we've talked about today with regard to murder. And we're going to have resources on our website of where you can call, what you can do. And we're going to list these concerning behaviors, these traits and characteristics of mass shooters, school shooters, and those that are likely to run out of coping energies and commit crimes. And hopefully this can raise your awareness and you can spot these high-risk people that need help before they take tragic, tragic actions. I'm Dr. Phil.